0: Hi, everyone. It's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. As we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and welcome to Teddy Talks for Thursday, May 29th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. It's a beautiful morning in Medora, just outside the window uh, at the Point to Point Park uh, construction site right now. More construction site than park. 30 men and women doing concrete work, uh, making sidewalks, uh, Uh, The men who've been working on the putt-putt, the little bully putt-putt golf course, are really making tremendous progress, working seven days a week, and that we might have another wonderful place for the grandparents and grandchildren to play together. On this date in uh, history, May 29th, 1736, the birth in Studley, Hanover County, Virginia, then a colony of Patrick Henry, American lawyer, politician, the first governor of Virginia from July 5th, 1776 until June 5th, 1779. Elected also the sixth governor from December 1st of 1784 to December 1st of 1786. All of those would have been one year terms. The Virginians very much constraining the power of the executive uh, in, uh, in Virginia. He was a delegate to the first and second Continental Congresses, and uh, Henry urged independence when the Fifth Virginia Convention uh, endorsed uh, resolutions. The Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, uh, he was uh, serving on that committee that uh, uh, made that declaration that was then instructive to the uh, Constitutional Convention or the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Convention in uh, Philadelphia considering the uh, independence. At the Second Virginia Convention convened at St. John's Episcopal Church in the town of Richmond on March 20, 1775, uh, that's when we have the uh, famous uh, speech by Patrick Henry. Uh, there were uh, under consideration uh, a petition from planters in the colony of Jamaica uh, that complained about the king's actions but uh, admitted that the king could veto con- uh, colonial uh, legislation It urged reconciliation. Uh, Patrick Henry offered amendments to raise a militia, uh, uh, independent of royal authority, uh, and that conflict with Britain was inevitable. Uh, It's during that debate in favor of his amendments that he said the following. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. I had the pleasure as a young man of attending in Williamsburg, Virginia, in the uh, House of Burgesses, a recreation of that speech by a historic reenactor who was portraying Patrick Henry. I was probably all of uh, 16 or 17 at the time, participating in a, a youth leadership program, and, and I wonder what sort of seeds might have been uh, planted by that uh, moving performance by that gentleman. May 29th, 1780, the Battle of Waxhaws, also known as the Waxhaws, or the Waxhaw Massacre, or Buford's Massacre. Uh, this was uh, the British officer Tarleton that uh, apparently his troops did not uh, uh, give quarter when uh, uh, the Americans surrendered. Many men were slaughtered. Now, these are the sorts of things that uh, are recounted uh, in the uh, in the movie uh, that was done about, it. was it The Patriot? Was that the wonderful movie about the war in South Carolina? May 29th, 1790, Rhode Island becomes the last of North America's original 13 colonies to ratify the Constitution and become one of the United States. And on that same date, Wisconsin in 1848 is admitted to the, as the 30th state. So both Rhode Island and Wisconsin share this as their uh, state uh, uh, date. May 29th, 1866, the death of General Winfield Scott uh, and uh, his life worthy of study. I'm reading a biography on Henry Clay. Scott plays a role as a Whig uh, contesting for the uh, Republican or the for the Whig nomination for the presidency. May 29th, 1874, the birth in Kensington, London, England of Gilbert Keith Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, uh, a a wonderful uh, writer. Uh, he gave us uh, he gave us the uh, uh, the character I, d- I don't read the books myself but is it father Brown uh, sort of uh, a character in uh, literature uh, uh, a uh, Christian Orthodox uh, uh, conversion to Catholicism uh, uh, Chesterton is highly regarded amongst uh, uh, amongst uh, the Catholics here's uh, something that's uh, interesting on uh, Chesterton they do say uh, uh, I've Uh, read that Theodore Roosevelt was a a great fan of the writings of Chesterton and that uh, Chesterton's literary study of Charles Dickens, first published in 1906, was something he appreciated greatly and in Christmas 1908 TR gave one of Chesterton's most memorable collections of essays called Heretics as a gift to his friend Captain Archibald Butt, uh, one of our favorite graduates of the University of the South home of the Suwannee Review, the uh, oldest uh, uh, literary review publication in the United States. From other sources, I learned that uh, T.R. and uh, G.K. Chesterton first met during a dinner in London two years later at Roosevelt's request. Uh, They dined together and uh, indeed, according to a a report, uh, it was uh, T.R. who requested that Chesterton uh, be his uh, dinner guest. And afterwards, uh, uh, Roosevelt exclaimed, what a supreme genius Chesterton is. I never met a man who could talk so brilliantly and interestingly. Uh, This says, nor was T.R. the only Roosevelt who cherished Chesterton's writing. The long poem Lepanto was a favorite of T.R.'s eldest daughter, Alice, who could and often did recite all nine stanzas at a rapid clip. In later years, reciting this poem with her granddaughter Joanna was a source of particular delight for Alice Roosevelt Longworth, something that drew them together. Kermit Roosevelt, the son who had accompanied T.R. uh, uh, in Africa, uh, also had a great appreciation for Chesterton. Years later, this led to something of a social and literary coup. For Kermit and his wife succeeded in enticing the famously reticent poet, Edwin Arlington Robinson, to accept a dinner invitation, something he rarely did. The occasion, a gathering in honor of G.K. Chesterton. The bright company of those in attendance also included Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Robinson, who was known by his initials EAR, was said to have come, become quite talkative that evening. Indeed, he told an old friend afterwards that he talked incessantly. So, mm-hmm. connections between Theodore Roosevelt, his family, and I know for Don in Illinois, you might uh, be fascinated to know of uh, uh, of Alice's fondness for Chesterton's Lepanto. Uh, shan't we all go look that up today? May 29, 1886, the pharmacist John Pemberton places his first advertisement for Coca Cola, which appeared in the Atlanta Journal. May 29th, 1903, the birth in Eltham, London, England of Bob Hope. Uh, he would live 100 years, dying July 27, 2003, in Toluca Lake, California. And uh, we most especially remember that he made over 57 tours for the United Service Organizations, the USO, performing for the US Armed Forces between 1941 and 1991. May 29th, 1917, the birth in Brookline, Massachusetts of John F. Kennedy, 35th President of the United States. And uh, I I shan't attempt to do anything like Marilyn Monroe in singing Happy birthday, Mr. President, to John F. Kennedy. May 29th, 1919, uh, his life deserving of an entire program, but Robert Bacon, Theodore Roosevelt's classmate at Harvard, American colonel and politician, 39th United States Secretary of State, uh, being appointed by Theodore Roosevelt uh, for the last nine months or so of his presidency. And uh, Bacon would serve uh, under Taft as ambassador to uh, France, and uh, the uh, friendship. Uh, Bacon was a a major supporter of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, 1912 presidential campaign. Well, uh, we have uh, here at Teddy Talks enjoyed going back in history, finding things that Theodore Roosevelt uh, said, did, wrote on this date. Uh, Very often we try to find that linkage. And you'll recall in 1903, uh, boy, you've been with me, some of you, from the beginning when we began these April 1st and commemorated Theodore Roosevelt's capture of the boat thieves. Uh, You'll recall that in 1903 on April 8th, he returned here to Medora during his great Western trip. And that Western trip, as we've touched it uh, during these uh, uh, days and weeks, uh, we've gone to uh, the Grand Canyon and Yosemite, up and down the Pacific coast, the West beyond the West as as, uh, we read that Theodore Roosevelt referred to it in his speeches. In the last couple of days on the calendar, uh, back in 1903, Theodore Roosevelt has gone through Montana, uh, through Idaho, and his remarks uh, today from Utah, May 29th, 1903. uh, First at the uh, Mormon Tabernacle in Salt Lake City. Mr. Governor, Mr. Mayor, Senator Kearns, and you, my fellow Americans, I am particularly glad to have the chance to speak to you here in this city in Utah this morning, because you have exemplified a doctrine, which it seems to me all essential for our people to ever keep fresh in their minds. The fact that though natural resources can do a good deal, though the law can do a good deal, the fundamental requisite in building up prosperity and civilization is the requisite of individual character in the individual man or woman. Here in this state the pioneers and those who came after them took not the land that would ordinarily be chosen as land that would yield return with little effort. You took territory which at the outset was called after the desert and you literally, not figuratively, you literally made the wilderness blossom as the rose. The fundamental element in building up Utah has been the work of the citizens of Utah, and you did it because your people entered in to possess the land and to leave it after them to their children and their children's children. You here, whom I am addressing and your predecessors, did not come in to exploit the land and then go somewhere else. You came in, as the governor has said, as homemakers to make homes for yourselves and those who should come after you. and That is the only way in which a state can be built up, in which the nation can be built up. You have built up this great community because you came here with the purpose of making this your abiding home and of leaving to your children not an impoverished, but an enriched heritage. And I ask that all our people from one ocean to the other, but especially the people of the arid and the semi-arid regions, The people of the Great Plains, the people of the mountains approach the problem of taking care of the physical resources of the country and the spirit which has made Utah what it is. You have developed your metal wealth wonderfully and your growth is not a boom growth, it is a thoroughly healthy, normal growth. During the past decade, the population has doubled and the wealth quadrupled and labor is employed at as high a compensation as is paid elsewhere in the world. Although you are not essentially a mining state, in the last year, you marketed 30 millions worth of ore. And again, you showed your good sense in the way you handled it, for you paid five millions in dividends, and you invested the balance in labor and surplus. The effort to make a big showing in dividends is not always healthy for the future. Here you have shown your wonderful capacity to develop develop the earth, so as to make both irrigated agriculture and stock raising in all its forms two great industries. When you deal with a mine, you take out the ore out of the earth and take it away, and in the end exhaust the mine. The time may be very long in coming before it is exhausted, or it may be a short time, but in any event, mining means the exhaustion of the mine. But that is exactly what agriculture does not and must not mean. So far from agriculture properly exhausting the land, it is always the sign of a vicious system of agriculture if the land is rendered poorer by it. The direct contrary should be the fact. After the farmer has had the farm for his life, he should be able to hand it to his children as a better farm than it was when he had it. In these regions, in the Rocky Mountain regions, it is especially incumbent upon us to treat the question of the natural pasturage, the question of the forests, and the question of the use of the waters, all from the one standpoint, the standpoint of the far-seeing statesman, of the far-seeing citizen, who wishes to preserve and not to exhaust the resources of the country, who wishes to see those resources come into the hands, not of a few men of great wealth, least of all into the hands of a few men, who will speculate in them, but be distributed among many men, each of whom intends to make his home in the land. This whole so-called arid and semi-arid region is by nature the stock range of the nation. One of the questions which are rising to confront us is how this range may be made to produce the greatest number and best quality of horses, cattle and sheep. Not only this year, not only next year, but for this generation and the next generation. The old system of grazing the ranges so closely as to injure the whole crop of grass was a serious detriment to the development of the West, a serious detriment to the development of our people. The ranges must be treated as a great invested capital, and that old system tended to dissipate and partially to destroy that capital. That is something that we cannot, as a nation of homemakers, permit. The wise man, the wise industry, the wise nation maintains such capital unimpaired and tries to increase it. And more and more, the range lands will be used in conjunction with the small irrigable areas which they include, so that the industry can take on a more stable character than ever before. It is impossible it, permanently although it may be advisable for the time being, to move stock in a body from summer to winter ranges across country which can be made into homesteads. Because when the country can itself be taken by actual settlers, in the long run, it will only be possible to move the stock through hundreds of miles of dusty lanes where they cannot graze, where they cannot live. Our aim must be steadily to help develop the settler, the man who lives in the land, and in growing up with it and raising his children to own it after him. More and more hereafter the stock owners will have the necessity forced upon them of providing green summer pasturage within the limits of their own ranges, so the question of irrigation is well nigh as important to the stockman as to the agriculturalist proper. In the same way our mountain forests must be preserved from the harm done by overgrazing let all the grazing be done in them that can be done without injury to them. But do not let mountain forests be despoiled by the man who will overgraze them and destroy them for the sake of three years use, and then go somewhere else and lead by so much diminished the heritage of those who remain permanently in the land. I believe that already the movement has begun, which will make in the long run the stock raisers of whom I have been one myself, whose business I know, and with whom I feel the heartiest sympathy, through the entitlement of their own self-interest, become the heartiest defenders and the chief beneficiaries of the wise and moderate use of forest ranges, both within and without the forest reserves. It is, and it must be, the definite policy of this government to consider the good of all its citizens, stockmen, lumbermen, irrigators, and all others in dealing with the forest reserves, And for that reason, I most earnestly desire in every way to bring about the heartiest cooperation between the men who are doing the actual business of stock raising, the actual business of irrigated agriculture, the actual business of lumbering, the closest and most intimate relations, the heartiest cooperation between them and the government at Washington through the Department of Agriculture. Of course, I do not have to say to any audience of intelligent people that nothing is such an enemy to the stock industry as persistent overgrazing. We shall have not far hence to raise the problem of the best method of making use of the public range. Our people have not as yet settled in their own minds what is the best method. In some way, there will have to be formed such regulation and shall without undue restriction prevent the needless overgrazing while keeping the public lands open to settlement through homestead entry. Such a policy would, of course, be of the most far-reaching benefit to the whole range industry. It is the same in dealing with our forest reserves. Almost every industry depends in some more or less vital way upon the preservation of the forests. And while citizens die, the government and the nation do not die. And we are bound in dealing with the forest to exercise the foresight necessary to use them now but to use them in such a way as will also keep them for those who are to come after us. The first great object of the forest reserves is, of course, the first great object of the whole land policy of the United States, the creation of homes, the favoring of the homemaker. That is why we wish to provide for the homemakers of the present and the future, the steady and continuous supply of timber, grass, and above all, of water. That is the object of the forest reserves, and that is why I bespeak your cordial cooperation in their preservation. Remember, you must realize what I thoroughly realize, that however wise a policy may be, it can be enforced only if the people of the states believe in it. We can enforce the provisions of the forest reserve law or of any other law only so far as the best sentiment of the community or the state will permit that enforcement. Therefore, it lies primarily not with the people at Washington, but with you, yourselves, to see that such policies are supported as will redound to the benefit of the homemakers and therefore the sure and steady building up of the state as a whole. One word as to the greatest question with which our people as a whole have to deal in the matter of internal development today, the question of irrigation. Not of recent years has any more important law been put upon the statute books of the federal government than the law a year ago providing for the first time that the national government should interest itself in aiding and building up a system of irrigated agriculture in the Rocky Mountains and Plains states. Here, the government had to a large degree to sit at the feet of Gamaliel in the person of Utah for what you had done and learned was of literally incalculable benefit to those engaged in framing and getting through the national irrigation law. Irrigation was first practiced on a large scale in this state. The necessity of the pioneers here led to the development of irrigation to a degree absolutely unknown before on this continent. In no respect is the wisdom of the early pioneers made more evident than in the sedulous care they took to provide for small farms, carefully tilled by those who lived on and benefited from them. And hence it comes about that the average amount of land required to support a family in Utah is smaller than in any other part of the United States. We all know that when you once get irrigation applied, rain is a very poor substitute for it. The federal government must cooperate with Utah and Utah people for a further extension of the irrigated area. Many of the simpler problems of obtaining and applying water have already been solved and so well solved that, as I have said, some of the most important provisions of the federal act, such as the control of the irrigating works by the communities they serve, such as making the water appurtenant to the land and not a source of speculation apart from the land, were based upon the experience of Utah Of course, the control of the larger streams which flow through more than one state must come under the federal government. Many of the great tracts, which will ultimately so enlarge the cultivated area of Utah, which will ultimately so increase its population and wealth are surrounded with intricate complications because of the high development which irrigation has already reached in this state. Necessarily, the federal officers charged with the execution of the law must proceed with great caution so as not to disturb present vested rights. But subject to that, they will go forward as fast as they can. They realize, and all men who have actually done irrigating here will realize, that no man is more timid than the practical irrigator regarding any change in the water distribution. He wants to look well before he leaps. He has learned from bitter experience what damage can be done from well-meant changes hastily made. The government can do a good deal. The government will do a good deal. But your experiences here in Utah has shown that the greatest results which are accomplishing most spring directly from the sturdy courage, the self-denial, the willingness with iron resolution to endure the risk and the suffering of the pioneers. For they were the men who sought and found a livelihood in what was once a desert. And they must be protected in the legitimate fruits of their toil. One of the tasks that the government must do here in Utah is to build reservoirs for the storage of the floodwaters, to undertake works too great to be undertaken by private capital. Great as the task is, and great as its benefits will become, the government must do still more. Besides the storage of the water, there must be protection of the watersheds. And that is why I ask you to help the national government protect the watersheds by protecting the forests upon them. Theodore Roosevelt, Salt Lake City, May 29th, 1903. Uh, We'll conclude with uh, uh, statements at Ogden, Utah, May 29th, 1903. And uh, if you'll indulge me in a sip of uh, the the coffee that uh, I give thanks for each and every morning, Though the best coffee is to be had at uh, the little uh, uh, Java coffee shop uh, across from the Schaefer Center here in Medora. Ogden, Utah, May ninth, Mr. Mayor, Senator Smut, and you, my fellow citizens, men and women of Ogden, of Utah, it is a great pleasure to come before you this afternoon. And if I needed, which I do not, a vindication of what was done in irrigation, I would appeal to the experience of the people who have made so marvelous a success of irrigation in this beautiful valley. What you have succeeded in doing with beet sugar alone is sufficient to show the wisdom of trying to develop in every way the irrigated agriculture of the country, and I was more pleased than I can say to have been able to render any aid whatsoever in putting upon the national statute books a law which I consider in beneficence second to none connected with our internal development since the Homestead Law was passed. I am delighted that the National Irrigation Congress is to be held here next fall. And I congratulate the state of Utah upon the fact that its legislature was the first ever to pass an appropriation for such a Congress. There can be nothing of greater importance to the welfare and growth of our country during the half century that is opening than this question of irrigation. It is of vital consequence to the growth of all the states of the Rocky Mountains and immediately to either side. And anything that is of such consequence to one portion of our country is necessarily of consequence to all. I cannot with too much emphasis say that every wise and patriotic man will favor any scheme for the betterment of a part of the country, whether it is in his own section or not, because whatever helps a part of us in the long run helps all. Fundamentally, we go up or go down together. Prosperity does not stop at state lines, and neither does adversity. When prosperity comes, while it may come unequally, yet it comes somewhat to all. And when adversity comes while some will suffer more than others, yet all must suffer somewhat. The greatest lesson which the American body politic need to take to heart at the beginning of the 20th century is that it is out of the question permanently for our people to progress save on lines that tell for the progression of all, that you cannot raise permanently one section by depressing another, one class by depressing another. And the man is recreant to the principles of our government no less than to the welfare of our people who seeks to arouse any feeling among Americans against their fellow Americans whether he makes his appeal in the fancied interest of a section or in the fancied interest of a class we can go up as we shall go up only by each of us keeping in mind not merely his own rights but his duties to his neighbors meaning by neighbor, every man living within the limits of this broad land. The safe motto on which to act is the motto of, not not of some men down, but of all men, and therefore I feel that it was not merely my privilege, but my duty to ask the national government, the government representing the people of the entire nation, to do all in its power for the furtherance of the interests of those states whose success is largely dependent upon the application of the principles of irrigation. And now you know the proverb, the Lord helps those who help themselves. If you throw all the duty of helping you on the Lord, he will throw it back on you. Now it is the same way with your fellow men. Providence is not going to do everything for you, and the national government cannot. All that the national government can do is to try to give you a fair show to help you to the chance of doing your work under favorable conditions. And then the work has got to be done by you yourselves. And as one step toward that work, I hope most earnestly that you and all the other states in interest will push forward and will in every way endeavor to make the meeting of the Irrigation Congress here in Ogden a thorough success. And I say that not merely in the interest of Ogden, Not merely in the interest of states which are to be benefited by irrigation, but in the interest of the union, I want to see that Congress a success. I want to see the work of irrigation made the greatest possible success. Here in the audience today at Ogden, I am greeted by the one class of our citizens whom I feel I have the concurrence of all of us in putting foremost, and giving for all time the right of the line, the men of the Grand Army of the Republic, and also greeting the younger men, my own comrades, who ashore, and I am glad to say here afloat, both ashore and afloat, did their duty in the War of 1898. And I want to say just a word to you about them. When I greet the men and women of the generation that fought the Civil War, for mind you, the woman who stayed at home and sent her husband or lover, father or brother to the war, that sent the breadwinner off and tried to do her best without his aid at home, knowing that he might never come back, she deserves just as much recognition as the man who went. In fact, when I speak of good citizenship, I am just as apt to think of a woman as a man. And in the partnership between man and woman, I am by no means sure that it is the man that generally has the best of it. And one thing I know, that no other citizen in the country has the equal claim upon us as the woman who has brought us up to be honorable men and women, her children, who has done her duty in the home to husband and to children. Now you of the Civil War and you my comrades of the Lesser War, for gentlemen, in our case, it wasn't so much of a job, but we did it. I want to take just one lesson from what you did. At Salt Lake, I spoke of the lessons to be drawn in our own domestic and civic life from the conduct of the men who fought in the Great Civil War. We have many problems to face within our boundaries here as a nation. Many new problems have arisen and will arise as incidents in the tremendous growth of our complex industrial civilization. We need to advance new methods of meeting those problems, but the spirit with which we must approach them if we are to succeed is the spirit shown by the men who in 1861 answered when Abraham Lincoln called. A spirit of broad brotherhood a spirit of manliness, which will not endure wrong and will not inflict it. I don't want to see you endure wrong, and I don't want to see you inflict it. Those are Theodore Roosevelt's words in Utah on this date, May 29th, 1903. We will conclude our 26 days with the 26th president here at Teddy Talks for the month of May. Tomorrow, Saturday, May 30th, we'll have comments from Governor Theodore Roosevelt made in New York City, New York, uh, to the uh, members of the Grand Army of the Republic mentioned here. And I think it being the concluding program for the month of May, I'll, do, uh, I'll conclude our, our Saturday visit and the last of our weekly visits, uh, uh, last of our week-long visits with a reading from Theodore Roosevelt about life here in the Badlands when he was a cattle rancher a place that he said the romance of his life began, a place of which he said he would have never been president but for his experiences here, and a place that he told a friend that if you took away every memory of his lifetime and vouchsafed him but one, the one that he would choose to retain would be of his time here as a cattle rancher. So we'll do a little reading, and then uh, again uh, Saturdays in the month of June. Well, I think uh, I'll post a little something. Thinking of moving it back since it's a Saturday morning that we might, instead of going at 7 a.m. Mountain, roll back to 8 a.m. Mountain. Then maybe our friends on the Pacific Coast, the West Beyond the West, can have their cup of coffee with Teddy Talks at 7 a.m., 8 a.m. Mountain, 9 a.m. Central, 10 a.m. Eastern, all one great nation. And I hope that these Teddy Talks have meant a little something to you. I thank each and every one of you that has stopped by, some of you who've been constant companions, Uh, Theodore Roosevelt said in a moment of uh, a quick decision, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing. The worst thing to do is nothing. I just could not do nothing. And there's been plenty of other work to be done, but I had the need to get into the words and the wisdom of Theodore Roosevelt and share it with you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for joining us here at Teddy Talks. My thanks to the folks at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation for their assistance in putting these programs up at YouTube and Spotify, where they'll live. And uh, I look forward to continuing these programs with you. And perhaps after our summer season, perhaps in the winter, we'll go back to a a daily Teddy Talks. They've really meant a, a great deal to me. Well, in the words of President Theodore Roosevelt, goodbye and good luck.